Welcome to the Salted Podcast, where we are translating and transforming our view of politics, pop culture, and personal preferences. In this episode, we discuss the idea of identity self-determination. Sounds complicated, right? Well, that's because it is, but that's why we're talking about it. So let's get salty. My name is Yon. This is Dan. And today, we're talking about a really big topic, the concept of identity and how our identities are formed in today's culture. Yo, and this is the topic of the century, maybe? It could be the topic of the century. If you listen to Tim Keller, he says this is the foundational concept of, really, the 21st century. What's going on? In the way we perceive the world. So. Yeah, and so by by recognizing that, we should probably start by saying we're just going to scratch the surface, right? We're doing like a 101 intro to the topic. We are, we are for certain uh, not covering all of the different aspects that we could cover. Yeah, that's our disclaimer. So any of you people who are interested in this topic, we will be having additional podcasts that kind of address some of the nuances of it. But that's our disclaimer. We have to put it out there because we don't want people to be angry at us. <laughs> yeah. We're very sensitive. Especially with all the hate mail we've been receiving. That's right. After going viral. That's right. And at the end, stick around because if you've heard anything about a war that's going on culturally, the chicken sandwich war, we're going to tell you who won. It's over. It's over. The war is over. <laughs> and we'll tell you who won and who lost really badly. And in fact, it's a bigly loss. It's a pretty bigly. So stick around for that at the end. But for now, identity, big, big topic. And so it's probably helpful to maybe to define some terms before we get going and maybe what exactly is an identity. Yeah, I mean, how would how can we, for someone who's listening and we're trying to say, this topic will blow your mind, but we don't want it to. How do, right. we, how do we boil it down and kind of frame it, Yon, in a way that we can understand what we even mean when we say a sense of identity or the topic of identity? What are we talking about? Yeah, I think the, uh, the place to go is our friends at the American Psychological Association, the APA, and they provided a very helpful definition of identity and how someone's sense of identity, sense of self, is... Defined. So they kind of broke it, they broke it up into two kind of little categories. They said it's a set of physical, psychological, and interpersonal characteristics that is not wholly shared with any other person. It's unique. It's unique to you. You're physical, psychological, and there's some interpersonal characteristics in there as well. Snowflakey. Yes. That would categorize yourself. Right. Yes. You're one of those boomer snowflakes. It's one oh, of those unicorns. No. Oh, I said oh, boomer. No. <laughs> um that was that's the first part. So really what we're talking about, um, right, physical. So we're talking about stuff like immutable characteristics, gender, race, uh, maybe some abilities. Maybe if you're athletic or not athletic, maybe there's some um, biological or genetic predispositions that you have. Um, so that's really the, kind of, we're talking about physical, psychological, maybe mental constructs, kind of the way that you, um, your brain works and your brain is wired. Maybe your style, if you've done any of those personality assessments. Um, and then there's a second piece that the APA talks about, and they talk about um, the idea that there's additional ways in which you create a, a defined sense of self, 
and that is a range of affiliations and social roles. So it's essentially saying um, the your culture, the society that you grow up in, the relationships that you have, um, those are affiliations that you um, that help shape your sense of identity. So there's two kind of pieces, the physical, psychological, that are kind of unique to you, and then also the the context in which you find yourself as you're building this sense of self. So that's a lot of very individual, uh, unique aspects, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it, and that's one of the unique, the, uh, again, the word unique comes up because everyone has these really unique experiences, whether everyone is uniquely made and that you have a certain style, you have a certain um, biological makeup, um, you have, and you're growing up in a specific context. If you're in a home with two parents, with one parent, with uh, you grow up in a certain social economic class, it's like those are, those are all very unique, and everyone has experiences that nobody else on the planet right. has. And they've got shared memories and goals. They've got unique values that arise out of that. Certainly, expectations that come from your your own personal background, right? Whether it's the way you were, your family was uh, raised, or uh, maybe your ethnic culture uh, has some values related to what's expected of you and beliefs uh, and so on. Yeah, so there's there's just this, this plethora of inputs that go into right. someone creating a sense of identity, a sense of self. And so really, I think that leads us to the question of really why is this, an, what's the big deal about this? Yeah, because it seems like everybody would agree that you have physical identity aspects and you have psychological identity aspects, right? Physical being gender, race, ability, and then psychological, your beliefs and values and worldview that it doesn't make sense initially that this would be an issue, right? I mean, it seems like... Who would disagree with what has been defined for us here? Right. Is that the question? Is the question who disagrees with it? Or is the question, is there another side to that? Yeah, I think that most of us... I think a lot of us live in or look at the world through the lens of, yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree that there's a, a list of these things, the, the physical, the psychological, the, you know, the culture and societal inputs that help create a sense of identity. Um, but really, there's a, there is a, a push in a different direction where that lens or that paradigm that we look at the world where those are important facets in the creation of our identity are, are being questioned hmm. and we're moving down this spectrum and really the question we have to start asking and I think a lot of people are asking is you know who is it that gets to determine our identity right but is it really a question shouldn't shouldn't I get to determine my identity like why why would this be a question if this is uniquely personal and individual why would I ever why would it be challenged ever that I get to? I'm determining my own identity. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the really unique part about living, especially in, in America, is that we are really hyper individualistic, mm, right? Where yeah. we are man of where we can pull up our bootstraps and we can make things happen for ourselves, and we are the determiners of our own destiny. And so, the question then becomes: Well, who gets to, like? Why do you get to tell me, or why do all these other inputs right. get to get to inform me on how I view myself? Yeah. And so we're sliding towards this really individualistic approach to answering the question, who determines what our identity is? And why isn't the answer, I get to determine it all the time in every area? Yeah, you said we're sliding on a spectrum. Where are we sliding from to the individual? 
Yeah, so I think when we think of uh, identity, I think, and, and the way in which we form our identity and our sense of self, there's a spectrum. And on one end, um, you're going to see that there's a, a, maybe a, theist, a theistic end of the spectrum, okay. which is, okay, there's a deity. It doesn't even necessarily have to be uh, the God of the Bible, the right. Christian God, the Trinity, but it is, there's an, a, a deity who created us and therefore gets to impose a definition of our identity. How do you how do you create your sense of self? Well, they tell us because they created us, mm. right? So that's one end. Then you move a little bit further down that spectrum. You say, well, okay, well, it's a there's primarily a a cultural and societal input, but also even if you don't really believe in God and you're not a theistic, you're maybe an atheist or an agnostic. The next step down that spectrum is okay. Well, there's some objective things that inform us, such as science and biology. Like those those are objective truths that inform. Our and, and sense also, of self, and also determiners. Correct. Yes, yeah. they're determiners. They gotcha. are they are immutable characteristics that are going to shape our identity, whether we like it or not. Gotcha. And that's that's everybody, not just individuals. Correct. Yeah. And then so you move a little bit further down, we start talking a little bit more about cultural and societal societal impacts, where maybe your sense of values come from the country you live in or the society, the culture you live in. Um, and then you slide all the way down to the other end of the spectrum. You go from one from the theistic side that an external entity is telling us how we form our identity, all the way down to the other end where nobody but myself and the unique individual gets to determine their identity and their sense of self. Gotcha. And really, this is why this topic has kind of bubbled over, right? Is because of the um, the identity creation being a combination of all of these things, but there's a push for the acceptance that individuals determine their own identity. Yeah, it, there's, a, there's a, a, a slide to you are the determiner, right. you as the individual, and it doesn't matter okay. what anybody else says, you get to determine every aspect of your identity. Gotcha, and you can, fundamentally then, it means that if that's true, you can or you have to reject the aspect, the determination based on science, based on theism, right? So to be wholeheartedly all in on individual determinism, you have to reject out of hand the other influences. Right, true. Yeah. And, it's, and this is where we get in the potential problematic piece because if I slide all the way to the end of the spectrum where I get to be the sole determiner. It doesn't matter about my culture. It doesn't matter what my culture says, what society says. It doesn't matter what science says. It doesn't matter what God mm. says. Then that creates some distinct problems in not only individual lives, but collectively as a, as a, as a people trying to live together interpersonally. Like what? I mean, what, what kind of problems surface? Because, I mean, I mean... You know, just listening to you describe all of that it sounds uh, pretty wonderful. Right? It does. What's it the problem? Really, yeah, it really does. And 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 I don't mean this because I'm trying to add some dramatic tension here to the conversation. I l- literally, objectively listening, thinking that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, of course, as a believer, it doesn't make sense to me that I would reject the theistic determinations of my own identity formation, right? right. I don't mean that, not the rejection part. Sure. But I, but I wouldn't at first notice that it's a problem to wholeheartedly embrace the exclusively individual way of determining one's identity. Yeah, it feels 
it feels right sometimes, right? When when you say, "Yeah, I get to determine what what's wrong with that." I mean, and this surfaces in, in I think some of the things we see in pop culture and in culture in general. We see statements that we agree with, which we've kind of taken to the extreme. And statements like you might hear something like, "Like you are not who science says you are," right? Mm-hmm. It's essentially yeah. you are not this, right? You are not who your parents say you are, or mm-hmm. you are not what your culture says you are. You are not who society says you are. You're not who your teacher says. You are who you say you are. These are these kind of, mm-hmm. these somewhat like self-empowering statements that we use to say, you know what? It's true. I am not what other people say yeah. I am. Yeah. And so we, we kind of puff ourselves up or brace ourselves with these self-empowering statements that does, other people tell us. It does sound anthemic. Right. right, it's an anthem of life. Right, I recite these things in the mirror. Right, right when I right. every morning, so that I can yep. walk and That's right. and and walk in my own self determination and my own assertiveness, and not I can make life happen, not have life happen to me. And right. so, um, and so those are that not necessarily what we're talking about in terms of well, those aren't bad things to say, but when we take them to their extreme and taken in isolation, they become problematic, and they're being kind of pushed along that spectrum, not from a self-empowerment, okay, I can, you know, I can work this thing out, this, this life out in a more self-empowered way. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it, we're, we're moving to, it's an extreme issue of yeah. rejecting gotcha. all of those yes, things. Yes, yes, okay. So to the degree in which you are exclusively individualistic, you have to fundamentally throw out the other aspects of that spectrum. Right, I exactly. See. Gotcha. And so if, so if you say something like, you are not who science says you are, okay, okay. Well, that, that may not be a statement you hear a lot, but it, it could be said, right? You are not who science... And that's, that's really speaking to the idea of, well, you are... The science does inform us about our characteristics. Like, there are those immutable characteristics that are a part of our gender creation and gender... Um, Identity sorry, gender, creation. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Identity creation. Yep. So you might hear statements like, you are not who science says you are, where if you're not a science nerd, you might not hear that statement a lot. Mm. But um, the idea that there are biology and all these things are not going to tell you who you are. But that's not necessarily true because your immutable characteristics are a part of your identity creation. Your gender is a fixed gender, Mm. biologically. But there's a push to say, you know, your gender may not actually be determinant by biology. It right. could be a social construct. So you get to decide, in fact, that this immutable characteristic, the science, this biology, this something that most people would agree is an important informer of our of our identity is no longer a part of our right. decision-making process. Right. So is that similar to and and I don't mean to put you on the spot here but <laughs> but I'm going to I'm I'm going to um, is that similar to uh, someone with Down syndrome, right? They have that chromosome right. issue. Yep. Just um, deciding and determining on an individual aspect that they do not have Down syndrome. Yeah. Would it, it be the similar if someone says, you know, the science says I'm this particular gender, but I'm not. Right. Would you consider that the same? Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, I think it's a, it, yeah, it's a definitely a fair comparison. And this is a, you know, it's a deeper conversation that I think we'll plan on having around gender identity and, and that design. But yes, it's a, it's a, it's a really a rejection of saying, you know what, I don't really care what biology says. Um, I'm going to determine the fact gotcha. that it is not. Oh, it's like saying, well, my biology is a social construct, so therefore I am no longer 
Down syndrome because the concept of Down syndrome is right. a social construct. Sure. So I'm going to sure. self-determine. Sure. Right. So, wow. Yeah. And so the, so the, the science question, right? Well, yeah, science isn't who I, it doesn't create the entirety of my identity, but it's part of it. I gotcha. And so the other questions are, you are not who your parents say you are. Well, no, that's, that's, of course, that's true. You are not entirely who your parents say you right. are. Especially if your parents have, um, you know, painfully in a kind of a, if you think of this too, too deeply, it's, it's heart wrenching, but especially for parents who have been condescending and, and have been hurtful yeah. and, and have, for whatever pain of their own, have caused pain to their child in their, who they have said and determined their child to be. I think there's a fair enough amount of people that would um, wholeheartedly hope that you aren't who your parents are or who have made their whole life goal to spite who right. their parents have said they are. Yep. Or even my parents who kept telling me how great I was. See, you have spited them. I am all not that. I've come to realize, <laughs> you know what? I'm not that great. I'm not that handsome. And Yeah, but that only started after you got married to Jules. People don't like me. Yeah, that, exactly. That's when that... Yeah. Thank you, I, God. Thank you, God, for Jules. Yes, exactly. She's brought me... She's helped me escape the trap of believing who my parents think I am. It's a wonderful person. That's so but, funny. But these questions, the same statements, right? These self-empowering statements that we use, right? You're, you're not who your culture says you are. I mean, that's, again true if that were to it's not your entire makeup but culturally you have a value system that's determined by yeah, the yeah. the environment in which you grew up in like everyone would probably think that murder is wrong now where did that concept come from did i just self-determine that no culturally we've kind of grown up to say murdering someone is wrong so yeah. starting with your parents exactly yeah. regardless of how yeah pleasant they are like who are who, who your teachers say you are all these questions about all you're not who all these other people say you are is in fact true at their core, but it is discounting the importance of all of these different inputs that we have in mm -hmm. our life and experiences that help shape our sense of I self. See. Would and you? Would you? Um, the one about you are not who society says you are. I could see how that gets traction with people. In fact, if you live to overcome the limitations that other people have placed on you, it would seem to me that the most noble one, the most uh, inspiring one is to say, society has defined me as X, Y, or Z, and I am not going to be defined by society. Yeah, and I think that's the, that's probably the chief problem is that who is, that goes back to the question, who is defining who we are? Mm. These, these statements become empowering because the people that are defining us are telling us how what our identity looks like societally i mean we're being we're constantly being advertised to they're telling us that um our we like our bodies aren't the way they're supposed to look and mm -hmm. so all these people these inputs speak and, for yourself yeah well <laughs> uh, <laughs> i hate you all right so yeah so all these inputs we have they're the, the question is well who gets to tell us and so there's a there's a pushback saying you know societally i don't really like what people are trying to tell me and so there's a pushback to say, you know what, all those other inputs, they're not sufficient in telling me who I am. Therefore, let's make these statements and be self-empowering, and I get to determine it. Because it's the question of who gets to determine it. And if we don't like what culturally and society people are telling us, then we're just going to push back and say, nope, I, I, this, is, this is me. All right, so, so then to frame it then, the main issue is there is um, an increasing amount of attention being given 
I don't know if it's an increasing amount of people, but there's an increased amount of attention, social media, right. uh, you know, political climate in our culture, who has empowered or who is embracing and accepting this idea that you are who you say you are. That's right. And you can fundamentally, out of hand, reject the theistic view of determination. Mm-hmm. You can fundamentally, out of hand, reject the scientific view, cultural view, that, that really you are the only factor in determining who you are. Yeah, you're, you get to reject out of hand all these other inputs that, generally speaking, most people ex- accept as important parts of our identity creation, all these other inputs. And it's solely you as the individual gets to create it. And this is problematic because obviously there's, we're lacking a common definition of terms now. We are, there's a lack of alignment in the way we view the world. Therefore, we don't necessarily have constructive conversations. To We're not aiming for the same target culturally. And then ultimately, this is a problem because as those of us who see the world through the, the gospel lens, as we view it and we view how God designed us and created us and we subscribe to the theistic view, we realize this whole issue is problematic because it rejects out of hand mm. the very person yeah. who created us and right. who has the authority to prescribe an identity to us and how that identity that is created. That is interesting. That is a fascinating thought. Imagine then that, um, you know, for our listeners who, uh, you know, for for our targeted reasons are, are believers, right? They belong to God. They've, they've trusted Jesus and, um, you know, belong to our church family and so on. It's, it may, it may be surprising to to put it lightly to discover that to support embrace or advance the individualistic determination of our identity is actually fundamentally opposed or it is um, the opposite I guess to use an elementary word it's the opposite of a um, worldview that is shaped by what God's told us about how he's done things, how right. he's made things to be, how he's designed things. Yep. And I think ultimately what we try to do is as Jesus followers to love people, we try, we view, oh, let me, let me help this person yes. realize their identity and their yes. individualism, embrace that. We, right. we, we think that we are helping them when in fact, if we're if we're helping them do something opposed to yes, God's design, yeah. it's actually right. more problematic right. and more hurtful for so them. So that's in the a long challenge. Run. Then I mean, that's a that's obviously uh, in our church family and under my leadership. Um, I think you know my my vision uh, would be to elevate the um, love of God as the starting point of a new believer. Right, a new believer is in prayer. Their life is now their heart has come alive with God's. Uh, values and virtues and his his affection and and God of course being uh, a God of fundamentally in essence a loving God it would make sense then that um, I would I would never want people to reject somebody right who believes different or who is you know um, so it's it's kind of a there's a tension there between loving somebody who is expressing their individualism and determining their identity. Right. And also at the same time saying, but that is fundamentally flawed. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's why I don't, 
man, I just it just it really grinds me that in our culture you can't disagree with somebody without being cast as someone who's hateful. Yeah. That that's really um I think that has deteriorated our ability to uh, to unify, to care, to be in community together. So I think it's worth noting that my church family, the the, the one that God has given us kind of um, oversight of to, to love and serve and lead, um, I think it's it's incredibly important that even though we disagree with the individual, primarily and exclusively the individualistic view of determining um, one's identity, that we embrace, love, care for people who do feel that way. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's a there's a level of love and compassion yeah. here as we meet them where they are. Exactly. And, and we can love them without immediately imposing a worldview and telling them, hey, right. your worldview's all wrong, and let me exactly. tell you how it's going to lead you to a, an unfulfilling life because it's against God's design. Exactly. So. And that being said, it's also equally unloving and... Yeah. and uh, unfair to uh, allow that um, worldview to go unchallenged, right? Yeah, and I think it's contingent as believers. I think it's the hard part is do you you trust the other party to say, okay, I can, you are not a bigot, right? Right, If I I believe that you love me and you say you care about me, but we just don't view the world the same way, it might be hard to say, you know what, I trust that that person can, can be in a relationship with knowing that I don't think that the way that they're expressing their identity is most beneficial to them. Totally. So. Yeah, that makes sense. But, and so the, the good news is, is that as we kind of navigate this, we probably need to start with, okay, well, if we're going to navigate these really tense, challenging interactions, both interpersonally and also culturally, this whole conversation, we have to probably understand what the Bible says about how we construct our identity yeah. in the first place. Yeah, and, and when you say what the Bible says, of course, what I know you mean is what has God revealed to us about the way that he sees it, right? Right. So the Bible not No, no, mean... what the Bible says. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's only, Never mind that's that. the only Never phrase mind we use, the yeah. Bible says. That's right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... We, of course, are not referring to a book that was um, primarily or exclusively an ancient book based on shaping ancient values. We mean that God has, through this book of the Bible, revealed to us His expressed purpose and design in the way His creation is been designed to function in the most healthy, most effective, and in, in, in thriving way. So the, the question is, what does God say about this? Yep. What does he say? And essentially what God says is that your identity is not fundamentally defined or categorized by the individual. Hmm. It's not fundamentally or um, um, essentially exclusively defined or even categorized by a person, by me. I don't get to, in God's design, um, uh, ex- express, define, determine my own identity. Um, or, that, or, or even that exclusively a human system or a philosophy by itself determines my identity. I think um, that's probably the key part where you said by itself, right? I mean, right. Exactly. So we don't start with the individual or the human system. We right. start at the other end of the spectrum. It's we start with God. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 you know some of the some of the common bond initially that we see that God has provided for us uh, that is not individualistic. 
it's actually communal. It's 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 like um, everybody shares something that immediately the individualism is gone. Is our common human bond of being broken and sinful in our nature, right? right? Um, and in that nature, we live for our own glory. So one of the things that we would want to do in this broken state is to determine individually our own identity. Right. In other words, so that is symptomatic of one of the main problems that, that God has revealed to us is a sinful nature that's marked by prideful self-reliance, self-determinism, uh, manifests itself in all kinds of evil and hurtful behavior on its own by itself. Right. And so if you're a human being, you have a disposition. You, The immutable characteristic of the disposition of being prideful and wanting to be the sole determiner of your own identity. That's right. Really. That's right. So imagine individualism, right? Determine, determining your identity as an individual inherently has in it one of the symptoms of our sinful nature, self-reliance, self-determinism, right. self-actualization, you know, and, and by that I don't mean being the best version of yourself, right. right? I mean the exclusion of all these other things that God has has provided for us. Um, and there are some things, there are some other things that we share too. We don't just share in our common human bond of a sinful and broken nature, uh, but also we share a fundamental identity that this, this is so, and, and you know, Immediately when I start thinking about this, it brings to mind the, the, the controversies that we faced publicly, the Christian community has faced with kind of the secular humanist culture. Um, you know, some would call that a part of the culture war, right? Is this idea that God fundamentally describes a shared identity among all human beings in its design as male and female. And... And the reason I, you know, when I say those words, male and female, I immediately go back to all of the um, public, painful uh, battle that um, that surfaces whenever um, same-sex marriage is right. in the headlines. It's right? almost nerve-wracking to even say. It put is. Put on a podcast it, and say, I it, know. Just saying, God designed us male and female. I know. It's controversial. Design, it's controversial, it's so controversial, and controversial. it feels controversial. It, it does. Feels yeah. Well, I wish, as you know, as you know, I've said this many times, I wish that there, the, the, the knuckleheads that are speaking for us publicly weren't speaking for us publicly. Um, and using these types of um, beautiful design plans and elements that God has provided for us as kind of a weapon, you know. Um, so, so our shared fundamental identity is male and female um, and that that's not fundamentally forced on me by a cultural construct or a tradition, that this is a design element. Uh, it's defined and designed by a creator, right, who has given this, uh, these design elements of male and female to us. They have been stamped. Uh, we've been stamped um, in his image, hardwired into me by a creator, um, so that's a God-given identity versus a an element of the God-given identity rather than, or versus, or or um, as opposed to a man-centered, created determination right. of my identity. So we start by saying these are the things that God has said about our design and our identity, right. and regardless of whether how much we fight against it, those are what God says and the biblical principles that lay down said these are the yeah. essentially the immutable right. things you can't change. Right. And I and and you know, I think it's important to mention too that these first turn up 
in the book of Genesis, right? And what does Genesis mean? At the beginning, in the beginning, um, uh, the starting point. Uh, Genesis is uh, is important because it's a f- it's a fundamental meaning. It's a bottom base beginning to, to view um, the the human identity through those through those terms. Yeah. So this is stands in stark contrast to the hyper individualism yes. we've described. Um, what are some of the additional insights that you can say, well, these biblical principles help solve this cultural crisis that's created by this, by this hyper-individualism? Yeah, well, I think it starts, there, there's two things that come to my mind. Number one is, well, I guess it's birth and rebirth. Um, in, in birth, every human being, um, primarily their belonging is in the human race. Uh, as a human, as we mentioned, they're either male or female, they're made in the image of God, and they have, based on being stamped with God's identity, with his image, they have the capacity to love, create, um, you know, they're savoring beauty, they're making moral judgments, all of this is just based on how God has stamped and hardwired into the human, every human being, his image. And that's just by birth. And that's a pretty important thing, because a lot of people... I think if you're on the individualistic side, they say, "Well, I hope like you're just telling me that God gets to determine what I do. Like he, I'm like a little robot." It's like, no, God by being made in the image of God, it's pretty, it's a pretty incredible yeah. thing. When limitless, we, exactly. So we are God's image bearers. We're creators. We're our ability to love and our our free agency and stuff like that. It's like, okay, well, we're not just automatrons made by God to do what He wants and little little pawns on the chessboard. It's you know, a pretty you know, what is an thing. automatron? Well, if you've ever seen, uh, I don't know, it's <laughs> like a little, like a little robot. You know, you just, it is. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. not an Android or something. Well, I'm a, I'm a iPhone user, so <laughs> you've gone off the rails. All right. So I said birth and rebirth. Yeah. So the birth is everyone. It's the human race. Um, secondly, um, one another biblical principle is the idea that there is there is uh, identity found in birth and also identity to be discovered in rebirth. And that means that we belong by our spiritual rebirth through believing in, in uh, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and that all true believers are recategorized, this is incredible, out of individualism and into what's called the one new man. Um, and then... And then we get to treasure our new individual union with Jesus. We get to contribute to the faith family with our God-given talent and treasure. We get to honor and enjoy uh, the beauty of diversity within the family. We get to express all the gifts, talents, creativity, loving uniqueness that God has made us. But we do so as one new man. What does that mean? That means that all of the boundary lines of culture, class, gender, and race basically are erased because of new birth, because of rebirth and regeneration. And those lines, those categories, those divisions, those obstacles are removed, and God brings all the different classes, races, cultures, the two genders, they all come to the same table, and they sit at his dinner table. He's the father, and all of his children are sitting at the table. No more um, small rooms for one ethnicity, no more outside meals for a certain race or, uh, or or class, everybody is at, quote unquote, the king's table. And that's 
Um, I think that's important when we think about leaving the individualistic view of determining our identity and joining in in God's family that comes by rebirth. Right. And I think you're speaking, I mean, ultimately, primarily about the spiritual rebirth and the unification. And that doesn't necessarily manifest in practical, physical terms in perfection, right? Yeah. Just because we all come, that's we're a good a part point. of a faith family doesn't mean, okay, well, all of our yes. individual and all of our issues are resolved. It's it's a, yeah. it's a spiritual, but a working towards a more perfect church family and, and new life right. rebirth. That's, that's a, that's a vital uh, distinction that you, that you are pointing out there. Yeah. What I mean is this is the way God views us as one new man, he calls it. Um, so, so if that's, that's how the Bible, that's how God informs us, right, of, of our identity and how he shapes our identity. And so as Christians, if we do that, right, if that's, we believe that and we embrace that, well, what do we, how do we go about transforming the culture, the way yeah. we view the culture in, in light of this biblical truth? Well, for sure, it means resisting, defining yourself by what divides us. Uh, and part of the problem with individualism is that you you have to define yourself by what makes you distinct from other people. <laughs> and I think that what makes us distinct from other people is to be celebrated. I think that God has described very, very vividly, there's all different parts of the body, and all the parts of the body are vital. You know, does the head say to the foot, I don't need you? Does the foot say to the head, I don't need you? It, the whole body is functioning together. Uh, with all of its beauty and all of its talent and all of its design, function, and form together. Um, so it would be vital for a Christian when they think of the way they view the world. Uh, a transformed view of pop culture would mean to resist defining yourself by what divides us from others. The lines and the barriers that are based on race and culture and class and gender, morals, political positions. And uh, actually, Tim Keller points out how important it is, why we should resist defining ourselves by these things. And he, he, he makes the description uh, in The Reason for God, uh, the book that he wrote. Great book, by the way, if you get a chance to read The Reason for God. Um, it's a game changer for sure. We only give you permission to not listen to this if you're going <laughs> to read that book. <laughs> That's so wise, Yon. I love yes, how you're welcome. I love how you did that. Um, yeah, he, he actually describes the danger, the, the, the risk in your defining yourself uh, outside of a biblical worldview. And he uses politics as an example, and he says, if we get our very identity, our sense of worth from our political position, then politics is not really about our cause or our causes. It's about us. Through our cause, we are getting a self, our worth. That means we must despise and demonize the opposition. If we get our identity from our ethnicity or socioeconomic status, then we have to feel superior to those of other classes and races. If you're profoundly proud of being an open-minded, tolerant soul, you'll be extremely indignant toward people you think are bigots. Mm -hmm. If you are a deeply moral person, you will feel superior to people you think are licentious and so on and so forth. And so what he's saying here is if you are shaping your identity around politics, causes, uh, your moral behavior, it, whatever it is that you're shaping your moral, your own identity around outside of God's design for you and for us, 
then you basically have to knock other people out and knock people down to in order to elevate your own identity. Right. I mean, and it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and he's not saying that those other those other things are not kind of part of your identity. It's you start with this is who God says I am, and then I've, I'm an advocate for a cause or something or or a position. Those things I'm allowed to. I can do it more freely because they don't define who I am. I'm 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 resting in my identity and who God says I am and God's design, and that allows me to go freely um, and more effectively advocate for these causes because I don't. It's not ultimately about me. Exactly. It's, it's, I can do it from a different. And it doesn't define me. That's winning right. the cause, losing the cause, winning the moral argument, losing the moral argument doesn't it doesn't strike at the core of who I am yep. because my identity has been shaped along with these other things, science and, and, and God's design, which would be the theistic uh, contribution, culturally familial um, background, so on. So now if the, the other thing that I think that one could do um, to face this problem, if you're a Christian and you're trying to kind of transform, or maybe even, I, I use the phrase, salt the earth with a, with a new way of looking at the world, it would be to embrace your identity as an image bearer, a member of the human race, number one, and embrace your identity as a uh, member of his family. Starting with the idea that we're all children of God, every single race, uh, genders, the two genders, your um, uh, culture, all of that is um, celebrated as a part of his family. We're all children of God. We embrace our identity as, as really um, three things. And I think this will bring unity in our diversity. Uh, and that is to embrace our identity as a child of God, right? We share a father together. And um, we share a brother in the scriptures described as Jesus. And we live in and give to a faith family. So that brings all kinds of unity as we embrace our identity together. Uh, and secondly, we embrace our identity as worshipers with the purpose. Imagine our life purpose, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, no matter uh, what class you come out of in your life, there is something about an identity uh, purpose that you embrace as a worshiper, worshiping the Creator, bearing His image. We talked about that earlier um, radiating and doing so, radiating through your marriage, raising your family, loving, working, creating, all those things, cultivating the earth, restorative justice, all that as a worshiper to bring glory or weight or attention or fame, we say in our church family, helping to make Jesus' name famous as a worshiper. All that done, all that stuff being done, not for me, but to bear the image of God, to reflect back and radiate his, his magnificent, majestic design. Um, so embrace our identity as a child of God, as a worshiper, and also as a disciple maker. What does this mean? This means that we all share in the work of disciple making. And the beauty, the beauty of embracing your work as a disciple maker is your disciple making mission is lived out in your unique circle. Mm -hmm. If you're in the academic field, if you're in the um, trades, if you're in the um, you know, whatever class that you find yourself landing in socioeconomically, all of that uniqueness is leveraged, really, right. as you do the work of making disciples. Yep. And it celebrates, and, and I, I use the word leverage, I'm not sure if that's a strong enough word, it, it requires you, you, you um, have the thrill of making disciples 
right where you are as you are going in right. your unique context, in your individual circle. Right. You don't have to be a platform preacher to make disciples. Right. So in your identity, um, so here's how I would sum this up, you know, and I would sum this up like this, that God has, um, he has kind of designed us, hardwired us to be an image bearer, and that allows us to embrace an identity that is uniquely us, but it is profoundly family, profound right. community. The, the one new man that we all kind of celebrate as a child of God, a worshiper, and a disciple maker. So that de de determines who we belong to, what our purpose is, and what we're doing. Right. All and three of those. Yeah. And it stands in stark contrast, if you think of the spectrum that we talked about earlier, the theistic on one side and the really individual mm -hmm. determiner of, of identity. Like we said, if you're on that individual side only, you are rejecting out of hand the other elements, yeah. the societal, the cultural, the yes. scientific, and the theistic inputs. Mm. But on this, I mean, when we start with the biblical principle and what God says and the, the theistic approach, say God designed us in a certain way, it it includes all of yeah. the beauty of all the other ones, the, the, culture, the, the scientific, right? God has ordained design through biology and chemistry and psychology. Mm. And then also in the cultural, the fact that we live together in community, the, div the, the diversity of people. I mean, one way is described as a band of natural enemies right. living, standing shoulder to shoulder for the sake of the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. So we live in community with other people. And then so that informs kind of how we're living and our values, but then all the way down to the uniqueness of us as individuals and how we're uniquely made and how we're uniquely placed to go help people discover this mm. design than this yeah. God who created us and who loves us. And so it, it runs the whole spectrum, the yeah. beauty, the, the best parts of that entire spectrum yeah. as opposed to just me, that's a myself and I. That's a brilliant observation. I think um, maybe brilliant's too strong of a word. You know? Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> but it, it really is a sharp observation that what we're saying here is that by God's design, he has created us to embrace all of those elements of identity formation yep. Yep. and not erase those uh, so that we have one exclusively, but that theistic view of identity includes embracing the scientific realities or immutabilities right. or uh, the cultural impact of the way that parents, uh, in fact, the Bible just loaded with cultural impact as one family um, uh, kind of... Um, um, gives birth and then elevates the their own children and then you know generation after generation is is what I mean and then to uniquely design individuals to contribute in ways that others cannot it's yep. embracing all of those I think that's a it's a really important sharp observation there on your end yeah and so ultimately that's kind of where we land as as Christians is we don't have to embrace the world or engage the world in a combative way and say sure. you're getting it wrong yeah it's a it is starting from this point of we know what god says about how we how our identity is formed we know we're working it out as christians as well we don't have it all figured out clearly um and then also engaging people and saying you know we can push back on this idea of only the individual is is the sole determiner because it is opposed to god's design and ultimately, it is not helpful for the person who believes that that is the pathway to, to mm -hmm. really flourishing. Yon, a lot of our listeners probably don't know that you're a war hero. 
you ha- it's my privilege to tell them that you have you fought in a war, but you have done nothing in fighting in those wars like you're going to do today, which is end a war. I get to single-handedly end a war. What's more war hero-y than ending the war? There's not much, you know, and hopefully I get a nice ribbon and a medal for it. <laughs> I can proudly display around my neck. Yeah, I can picture it. I think you will. After our listeners hear this, I think the medals are going to come, uh, are going to be, are going to be abundant. So the war I'm referring to, of course, is the chicken sandwich war. Mm, the war of it. all wars. The war is to end all wars. It is. Let's end it. Um, describe the war. Well, I guess there's a, there's a emerging chicken sandwich war, which was, I think, originally kind of hoist into popularity by Popeye's chicken sandwich and their introduction of it and the rapid sellout. And then there was a very large gap in time from when they could actually deliver more. It said something about they're like they planned for 50 chicken sandwiches per Popeye's and they were selling like 2,000. And then per day, per day, yes, correct, right. yeah. And then they um, and and Chick Fil A was yes, Chick Fil A was um, uh, weighing in on Twitter, right, yep. teasing them a little bit, I think. Yeah, and they weren't too happy. So Chick Fil A, because they have more buying power, they bought up all the chicken, which Ooh. made which was problematic for Popeye, so they couldn't release. They had to go source alternate chicken. It is a chicken war. It is literally a chicken war. And then and then <laughs> Wendy's weighed Ooh. in, and now they've recently come out with an ad saying. The chicken wars are over. Oh, stop. And, you know, so so we've decided to end the war, bring Let, peace in our time. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's. So this is our preferences segment where we get to express to you, if you're a Christian, what would you prefer? Well, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> well, it actually, actually might be relevant to this conversation, but... yeah. yeah. The well, way we're going to do it, the yeah. way we're going to do it is we're going to just, we're going to focus on five chicken sandwiches. Um, we're going to rank top to bottom. We're going to do Chick-fil-A, Popeye's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, or KFC, I think as they're called now, Wendy's, and McDonald's. And, and these are not random uh, long-shot guesses. This, is, this has been researched. Yeah, we literally firsthand. researched it about an hour ago. Right. <laughs> bellies are full of chicken sandwiches right now. <laughs> so. So, our, um, so, so let's end the war, Yon. You can rank these. There's five that you mentioned. Let's rank them in worst to first. Yep. Okay, so in true beauty pageant format, we're going to go worst to first. Number five, really disappointing, was KFC Sandwich. Now, KFC just entered the war and also advertised that they were going to end the war with yeah. their crispy chicken sandwich. Well, they ended the war, and it didn't end well for them. So <laughs> yeah, They lost. Dead last, yeah. All right. Big disappointment. Um, coming to number four, and this is a little bit painful because this is a restaurant that I frequented a lot in college, and I was deeply invested in the their chicken sandwich at the time, but it's Wendy's. Wendy's at number four, and so I grew up eating that spicy chicken mm. sandwich, kind of their classic, but yeah. they've released another chicken sandwich that claims to have ended the chicken war, but... It it's basically a new chicken patty, yeah. frozen chicken patty. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not necessarily great. All so. right, number three. Number three, so I was actually a little bit pleasantly surprised with number three. So McDonald's coming in, and that's <laughs> Ma- also McDonald's. McDonald's, but, what uh, is wrong with you? I don't know, but they came in number three, right in the middle. So they had, we tried the crispy buttermilk chicken the sandwich. Yeah, yeah, it was actually pretty good. Like tasty. The, the tomato was, you know, you have to cut through the skin with a steak knife, and yeah. nice and juicy, and it was pretty good. 
So. Yeah, and surprising considering that also was a frozen patty, evidently. Yeah. Now, I'm not, now, I don't know that. I don't work at McDonald's. Yeah. You have a deep-seated hatred for frozen chicken patties, evidently. So. Well, now that these other two, these last two, have um, have landed, uh, these kind of set the bar. Yeah. And I so, didn't hate the chicken patties until these two yeah, chicken sandwiches. Exactly. Uh, the problem is that they've raised the bar so high, the standard true. so high. So coming in at number two, which by default will tell you my number one, but I rank number two Chick-fil-A. Oh my goodness! God's chicken sandwich yes. joint comes in number two, two, the number one rated chicken sandwich in my mouth's opinion, the Popeyes wow, chicken why? sandwich. It's just delicious. I mean, every well, aspect of it is that. delicious. There's the brioche roll with. Okay. I guess they put the butter that they put on their biscuits on the inside. Okay. Uh, nice. I love their crispy um, breading. The way mm-hmm. they do that, nice. It's got a good fat crunch. And juicy, a nice crunch but inside nice juicy patty and then i do the spicy version so i like that spice and, yeah, and then i also like the 3.99 price point exactly by the way take that back you called it a patty oh it's a breast it's a yes. delicious non-frozen never frozen chicken breast yep and i just happen to enjoy it more than a chick-fil-a sandwich so i think that uh i think that just about ended the war yeah well what do you prefer chick-fil-a or popeyes well i don't know if i can kind of put them against each other. I think um, in true diplomatic fashion, I'm I'm going to approach this war with diplomacy. Uh-huh. I think that, in my opinion, the Chick-fil-A sandwich is just different from the Popeye sandwich. So I would say they're, I would not prefer, somebody said you could pick one, I wouldn't be able to pick one. It's okay. a, a completely different experience to get the crispy Popeye's chicken versus the tasty, fresh um, Chick-fil-A sandwich. So I, I enjoy them both the same but for different reasons that's fair i guess yeah it's a very pastoral response so well, thank you yeah not offending anybody so uh yeah let us know if you uh if you follow us give us a subscribe give us a like post in your review how right or wrong we are about our chicken sandwich preference but uh other than that thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time Thanks so much for checking out the Salted Podcast. You can find other episodes and topics on SoundCloud and on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you click follow so you can get notifications whenever new episodes come up. Thanks for listening.